Welcome back to On Call, a podcast from Amerisource Bergen where we discuss the latest industry information relevant to our GPO member practices. In this episode, the second of our GPO legislative update series, Joel White, President and CEO of Horizon Government Affairs, and Tony Lee discuss drug coverage, pricing, and payment. So the three big policy trends that I see impacting physicians in 2023 and beyond are payment issues broadly, but Medicare payment issues specifically, uh, what's happening with drugs and biologics and by extension coverage of those things, and then disparities and factors of healthcare that are socially determined and how we're addressing those. And so I wanted to do a bit of a deep dive into each of those issues, starting out with Medicare. And on the Medicare side, really in three key areas, MACRA, which has been problematic for a long time, value-based care and where we're headed, and then telehealth. So for MACRA reform, just to kick things off here, the stark contrast between what physicians get out of the Medicare program compared to every other provider in the program is dramatic. So you can see on the left side, that chart where physicians are well below PI or practice costs, well below consumer prices, and certainly well below what hospitals are getting paid over time. This is formula-driven. It's a function of the law, MACRA, and doesn't account for the increased practice costs that, that physicians have to provide. I think you all see that on an individual basis. In the chart on the right, this were the updates that were being provided in 2023 before Congress stepped in to address that 4.9% cut that physicians were looking at heading into January 1, 2023. And obviously there's a huge disconnect between what your input costs are and what you're getting paid. And the good news there is that there was a proposed set of policies and an actual for 2023. And I wanted to maybe turn it over to Tony to talk about what was proposed and what the actual ended up being. Thank you, Joel, and thank you all for being on the call. My name is Tony Lee. I'm Director of Public Policy in the U.S. Policy and Advocacy Department at Emerge Westbergen. Been here for a little over two years, and I'm really pleased to work with Joel and to speak to you today. As Joel outlined, he and I have been working on these issues for a while, and I'll first talk about the cuts, and then we'll talk about a little bit about the advocacy on your behalf. But in the final physician rule, the conversion factor cut was 4.5%. And, you know, Congress responded in that that Consolidated Appropriations Act at the end of the year by reinstating the supplement increases for two years, so adding a 2.5% increase in 2023 and a 1.25% increase in 2024. And so because of that increase in the conversion factors, you basically have a net reduction of 2% and 2024 equals to 3.25%. But the good news is that people go sequester cut that had been 4% that was scheduled to go into effect. And that was waived for 2023 and 24. So that's probably an issue we'll see at the back end. But at least for those next few years, we're good. And of course, the Medicare sequester battle that had been, as you know, had been going on for a good decade. Um, that had already applied. There was a partial relief in two steps in 2022 that went away. So that has been extended at the end to 2023. So that's something that could not be successfully combated. And with the macro 5% bonus payment for APM ending, there was a change to 3.5%. So that was not as, as severe as, as expected. And the good news also with it, where telehealth flexibility is extended to the end of 2024. 
Um, so it's all pretty complicated. You know, we made our own calculations within AV with our solution matter experts and thought that if the sequester, if the conversion factor cuts had gone in, it would have affected practices based on specialty anywhere from an average of two to six percent. So, you know, it's it's a very complicated formula, but it it's real dollars. So we do want to thank Joel, Lisa Harrison, Vice President in our specialty physician services division, went to the hill we staffed her in September for a day and two days in November. And we were able to have some very meaningful conversations and conversations with key staffers for that minority leader now, Speaker McCarthy, and um, also the Ways and Means Chairman. So we were really able to learn beforehand where they were going in the direction. You know, they couldn't be specific, but they did realize that it was a big confluence of events where all these cuts that had been scheduled through legislation over the years came to a head. It was a perfect storm for 2023. So we're very pleased that we've done some progress there and that they are looking at macro poems that we will stay involved with. And last thing I'll say is that AB has really tried in recent months to coordinate with our communications and marketing and really be very unified in how we not only develop the policies and execute them, but communicate them to all of you. Because as the charts show, there's been a lot of pressures that we think will hurt access ultimately at all your valuable practices. So thank you, Joel. Thanks, Tony. And obviously, this is the law. Um, and every year, CMS puts out regulations to implement the law. And last year, the, the proposed fee schedule came out on uh, July 29th, finalized on September, uh, sorry, November 1st. And obviously, this year, we're, we're going to be watching the, the proposed rule again. This year, I think, particularly for reductions in the conversion factor, which will once again affect reimbursement. But some, some areas that we're specifically looking at is in the quality reporting programs, uh, additional bonuses being given to small practices in particular. There was a 6% bump up there and then for small practices. And then CMS is also slowly over time increasing the performance threshold, the number of measures actually completed in reporting. So that obviously would increase burden for reporting purposes. But other things I think that CMS recognized in the rule was the separate code for pain management and global sur surgical package valuation is something that they're continuing to look at on an ongoing basis. So what the details of the proposed rule look like, uh, we don't know yet, but just know that Amerisource has a team of people that consistently goes through those rules, takes input from practices, and then weighs in with CMS and Congress to make sure that those are our advantage under the program. Now, having said that, I think it's important to note that Congress is not satisfied with MACRA. There's a lot of angst. If, you, if you're old enough to remember, MACRA came out of SGR, and SGR physicians were looking at double-digit payment reductions forever. And MACRA was intended to address that while also moving practices into a value-based system. And I think some of the challenges that we've seen with MACRA and the MIPS program in particular is that there's a significant reporting burden. It exempts more clinicians than will participate in the program. The scores or the value, you know, what we're trying to get, what Congress was trying to get at by measuring value or measuring quality was that you'd be able to tell who was a good and who was not a good provider so that people could get paid more for achieving higher quality scores and then attaining them. 
and beneficiaries would know and be able to pick and choose. But there are different rules for different clinicians based on location, practice size, other factors that make things not comparable, including the nature of the, the measures themselves. And as a result, MedPAC, or the legislative branch, the advisors to Congress on Medicare, has recommended that the entire MIPS program be repealed and replaced with a voluntary value-based purchasing model that would be specialty specific and reward value in a much more fundamental way. The problem with that is that in the alternative payment model space, in the existing law, is that it's really hard for small practices to invest, scale, and succeed just because the reporting burdens are significant and may not be specific to what each individual practice does. And there's a general sense from many in the community and in Congress that macro is just not moving the needle in the way that Congress intended. They wanted to move to value-based care and the reporting burdens and the outcomes from the patient perspective and the cost savings haven't materialized. So, you know, what are we doing here? We're just adding a lot of burden to people who are already significantly overworked and not getting the outcomes and the cost savings that we thought. The second thing is that under MACRA, those reductions to the conversion factor, the across the board sequester of 2%, the PAYGO sequesters of 4% have created basically another SGR situation where we're looking at cuts into the future. And so leaders in Congress have stepped up and said, this system, we agree with MedPAC, the system is not working very well. So congressmen that, that Amerisource works very closely with, Bouchon, and Barra, Delbeni, Senators Cassidy, Crapo, Wyden, they're all looking at the macro program for more fundamental changes. Um, and that could include site-neutral payment and remote care options. But a stable, consistent inflation update going into the future is definitely on the table. And right now, I can tell you, Susan Widener and others are developing reform ideas, and they're really looking for input as to what are the principles and fix around a system, if you could design it and wave your magic wand, what would that look like so that we can provide input into Congress to say, do it this way, not that way? But one of the things that we know is significant and is a key issue for the Biden administration, who again holds the regulatory levers, is addressing health disparities and equity. And it really is the prism through which the Biden administration measures success across a range of programs, but in Medicare and Medicaid specifically. And so from their perspective and based on data from Deloitte, you know, this is a big problem. It is that health inequities cost about $320 billion today, rising to a trillion dollars over the next almost 20 years. And that's more than the cost or the impact of smoking or tobacco use. And these are issues like food insecurity, housing, transportation problems, utility difficulties, presence of interpersonal violence in the home. And these disparities are more pronounced in cancer and other chronic illnesses, chronic illness patients than others, which makes sense because you go through a very difficult illness you may experience economic difficulties, keeping your job or things like that. And that could lead to food insecurity, housing insecurity, et cetera. And so that increases and accelerates disease progression, access challenges, cost issues, et cetera. So 
really a fundamental problem that the Biden administration is very committed to addressing. And so on the very first day that President Biden took office, he issued Executive Order 13985, which was a commitment by his administration to across all agencies, departments, and programs to advance racial equity and support for underserved communities through every means they have. And partly as a result, CMS put out a equity framework to address disparities in underserved communities. And you can see that on the right side there, the circle. Really, there's five key priorities. The first is collecting and reporting data. I think there's a lot of gaps in our data and what we know about disparities. We know they exist. We know that health-related social needs contribute significantly to socially determined health factors, which then contribute significantly to medical costs and access issues and poor patient outcomes. So collecting that data, and there's a whole work stream around that. The second priority is really assessing the causes of the disparities based on that data. Then building capacity is the third priority. And that's really an opportunity, I think, to, to make the case that we need more resources in the medical field to be able to address the causes and, and the data that we're seeing. Fourth priority is patient engagement and really getting cultural and other competencies brought to bear on treatment of patients. And the fifth priority is promoting access and really just rolling out the strategies that will improve the treatment of disparities and, and reducing those disparities overall. So more specifically in, in addressing health equity and those health-related social needs through state, federal, and private programs, again, this is the prism. In cancer, I think it aligns with what the Biden administration is trying to do on the cancer moonshot, which is really have the number of preventable deaths over the, the next 25 years and bringing people together to kind of work on these programs. In the federal space, what we're seeing is an increase in the Medicare side of things to incentivize the five priorities, the data collection, and that you'll see that in reporting on quality measures in the MIPS program, different alternative payment models, like for example, EOM program, where they're building specific requirements into SDOH reporting and activities to address those disparities. Medicare Advantage and special needs plans where you've got many plans adding into basic benefits issues that would address disparities like providing Wi-Fi in someone's home or wheelchair ramps to apartments or, or housing. And the hospital inpatient quality program and across CMMI models, again, those quality measures are getting brought in. On the state side, what we're seeing is more Medicaid programs adding payment or trying to address specific concerns, particularly around housing and food. And a lot of states are now thinking about or have submitted Section 1115 waivers, which means they can do special things in their state to use Medicaid to address these challenges. And then on the private side, JCO and others are coming up with the data standardization and certifying entities, hospitals to an equity standard that would, again, collect that data and measure how well a clinician is addressing those disparities. So there's a lot of activity here is the point, and there's resources that are coming behind that, and including enhanced payment. But drilling down one step below that, and I know a lot of folks are focused on where we're headed with EOM, 
and uh, sorry for the mistitled slide, it's really the EOM is the future of oncology care. You know, a significant change with going from OCM to EOM, and obviously we're in a gap period now with OCM having ended last year and waiting to stand up EOM in July of this year, but really reducing the number of cancer types in the model and increasing the reporting getting paid less for that amount of work and accepting two-sided risk at the outset on day one is really challenging. We've heard from a lot of practices that this is going to be very difficult to do. It's going to take a, a significant amount of investment. You know, there's less money on the table and it's really hard to collect and act on these non-health data elements and really significantly move the needle on the health disparity side of things. And what we're seeing in the short term is a number of interesting emerging strategies, including from Amerisource on solutions for how to collect and act on that data. And then, but I do think that over the long term for EOM to be successful, there needs to be policy changes to the model that factor into the additional cost and investment required to, uh, you know, address these needs. If the administration is serious about investing in addressing disparities, uh, and socially determined health factors, they really need to put their money where their mouth is. And we're not seeing that yet from the policy side. So, you know, there's planning going on now to make that case to the administration. Not sure what the rollout of EOM is going to look like. What we're hearing is a lot less is interested in participating, including practices that have been very strong in the OCM side. So if they get weak enrollment, patient, I mean, Will they then hit pause again and decide to change policy and see if they can get more practices involved? I think that remains to be seen, but we've we've been having a number of uh, very good conversations with Liz Fowler, who runs the agency responsible for the EOM program. And I think she's she's in a wait and see crouch right now. And so we'll see how that all plays out later this year. But do want to let you know that there's a short-term being developed and rolled out by Amerisource and the longer term policy changes are necessary to ensure EOM works for participants. That's all for this episode of On Call. Our next episode will feature information on the Inflation Reduction Act, PBM reform, and 2023 regulations. If you have any questions for our guests or have a topic you would like to learn more about, email us at oncallgpo at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening.